Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by another very special guest who was with us for Courageous Conversations, Dr. Cleotha Robertson. Welcome, Dr. Robertson. Uh, welcome. And it's a pleasure to be with you uh, again uh, on the, the Jew3 Project. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for accepting our invitation. And for those who are not familiar with you, just give them a little bit of background and um, your area of expertise. Sure. Uh, my name is Cleotha Robertson. I'm a native New Yorker. I live in Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn is my home. I teach Old Testament at Alliance Theological Seminary. I've been there since 2002, uh, since uh, 2004 as a full-time Alliance Theological Seminary in the city. Uh, my church background, I was uh, uh, reared at Cornerstone Baptist Church uh, in Brooklyn, New York, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, under Sandy Ray and Dr. Harry S. Wright, uh, were my pastors. College-wise, I went to Dartmouth College. Uh, then after that, Gordon-Conwell Seminary for a Master's of Divinity. Uh, after that, um, I went to a Brooklyn College for a Master's of Science and Education. Uh, then after that, I went to uh, PhD work, uh, not New York Theological Seminary, uh, New York University. Um, I, I, I was an adjunct faculty member at New York uh, Theological Seminary, but New York University in this department, and I got a Doctor of Ministry at Seminary in Philadelphia. Awesome. So uh, I think your expertise is very um, important because uh, you have a PhD in Old Testament, but you have a PhD in Old Testament from NYU and you went to uh, Gordon Conwell. So you have uh, both uh, streams of thought uh, that inform your, your uh, theological studies. So I think that's very helpful to understanding both sides of the argument. And um, that's why I appreciate uh, your background so much. Um, so thank you again for being with us. So we want to talk about something that um, we did a um, a survey on our Instagram page on the Instagram stories feature where you could do a poll. And we asked, you know, how many people struggle with interpreting the Old Testament in light of the new? And I think it was like 87 percent of people were like, yes, I'm I struggle with that. And um that's something common that we hear, people not knowing what to do with the Old Testament. Uh, some people just jettison it altogether and just read the New Testament. Um, some people just adopt things like, um, I remember reading a seminary about principalism and how using that to navigate the Old Testament. Uh, when you're encountering people uh, that are, are believers, whether they're new or old, how many do you see um, that don't know what to do with the Old Testament? Well, I, in my vantage point, I think it's a newer phenomenon, whereas for many of uh, folk of my generation, I think we grew up kind of with the stories of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament for us, we knew the stories, uh, Ten Commandments every, every Christmas or so, uh, well, not, 
uh, Easter season with uh, this, the story of Moses. So we knew the story and I knew it from Sunday school, but I think you now have a new generation of uh, folk who their Bible is the Psalms and the New Testament. Um, they look kind of in a, they, they do the hermeneutics by just having principles versus knowing the larger uh, historical narrative. So I think that, that that's a new phenomenon. Whereas, you know, my generation, we, we love the Old Testament stories because so much of the Old Testament you actually see in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hence, hence, hence my love for the Old Testament. <laughs> and you have to have a love for it to, to do a PhD in it, I, I imagine. Um, so when we think about interpreting the Old Testament in light of the new, um, what is your uh, advice to those who are wrestling with that? Well, I would suggest that you can't see or totally understand all of the themes and ideas in the new unless you see just the continuity with the old. And there are so many themes that are are started in the new that have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, The people of God, uh, the covenant of God, God revealing himself. God being one who speaks, God who being one who acts. All of those are themes that are present in the old and they find their way into the new. And so when you see those those principles, those basic, I, I would say principles, you then it, it, it just makes Jesus make more sense. Mm-hmm. Even, even for example, Jesus as, as a sacrifice, um, and going into the holy of uh, Jesus as a sacrifice, and that's built on the high priest going into the holy of holies there in Leviticus 16. You understand some of that imagery that you actually see on Good Friday, because it's taken it's taken straight out of Leviticus. But unless you know Leviticus and some of the sacrificial law, you know you would just escape uh, some of the symbolism there, mm-hmm. which, is, which is which is I think pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. And you you went for the the book that a lot of people uh, wrestle with, uh, Leviticus. Uh, what what are we to do with books like Leviticus um, in light of the New Testament? Um, because you know people go to that and say, well, we're allowed to eat she- um, shellfish in the New, but in the Old we're not allowed to. Um, how do we differentiate? Um, um, laws in the old testament versus what paul admonishes in the new um that's where a lot of people get hung up yeah i think that's an excellent excellent question because i think what it does show is people's desire uh to live in a way that's in accordance with god and so the zeal i like and i see for me the overall the overall idea in in the book of leviticus is how does a holy people interact with a holy God? Or how, how does a people become holy for a God who has revealed himself as, as separate from and wanting his people to actually have that kind of nuance in their walk with him? And so for me, that's one of the primary ideas laid down in Leviticus. Um, and then what's nice about 
just the, the laws of Leviticus is that that lifestyle is prescribed. Um, what to do in terms of what kind of clothes they wear, um, what to do in terms of what they eat, uh, what to bring to worship. And so I think those overall principles actually then find them their way into the New Testament in terms of a zeal for the Lord, uh, a life that is prescribed and defined by God's word. And so I think that idea permeates both old and new. And, and for me then, we then get to wrestle with, okay, can I be a Christian and eat meat? Can I be a Christian and, and, and drink alcohol? What should I do? What should I not do? And I think Paul wrestles with some of those and that some of the guiding principles are, are, are our community and witness. I wouldn't eat meat, Paul says, if it offends my brother. So it's not just the freedom of what you can do, but how that form, how that, how that shows itself in your relationship with the body of Christ and your relationship to the Lord um, versus, you know, nitpicking. Okay. Can I eat shellfish? Eat shellfish. I mean, some obvious, I think uh, health concerns if, if you are allergic to something, but I think the, the other idea is then are there other guiding principles in the new Testament that give us, give, give highlight to that. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. I think you're uh, referring to uh, something that we studied in uh, seminary principalism in relationship to old and new and what principles can we glean from and carry over. Um, on Leviticus and pressing into that, um, what are the distinctions between uh, the laws in Leviticus? In terms of the, the kind of laws? Yeah, the kind of laws. Well, you have personal laws in terms of, okay, these are the kind of things that you should you should eat. These are the kind of things that you can you should wear. Um, there are laws that deal with with the priests. Okay. Priest, this is how you should you should govern yourselves as priest. That comes, I think, in Leviticus eight through eight through ten. Then there are ritual laws in terms of uh, this is the way I I interact with the sanctuary. This is what I have to bring when I when I come to worship because there was the idea that there's no such thing as empty-handed worship. That if you were poor, there was something to bring. If you were more well to do. These were the prescriptions uh, laid down uh, for the regular person. So that ceremonial law, there's personal law, um, law in terms of how you interact with the cult. Uh, I use cult not in the sense of James Jones cult, uh, Jim Jones cult, but cult in terms of just uh, worship. Um, And then there were everyday rituals in terms of just how one would interact with the other. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the end of that, there was also laws like the year of Jubilee that had economic, uh, an economic base to it. And that it tried to make sure that there were people who were not really poor and that everybody had an access uh, to the economy and wealth with uh, making sure that 
you know, at the end of the Jew of Jubilee, uh, everybody's ancestral land was returned to them. Mm -hmm. So I love what you said at the beginning that this this law was to set how a holy people should interact with a holy God, because it seems as if throughout um, the the first five books that God is laying out how this people is to be so distinct and so separate that then they're only identifiable with the holy God that they worship. Um, so distinct from every other, um, other every other people group. Um, would you would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. I think it's it's interesting that you have a kind of particularism, but a universalism. Particular that God is dealing with uh, special people, His special people, um, but also that their role as a special people was to be a light to the nations. So you have that kind of very particular that you've got that you're interacting with the Lord, but it's that group is not closed. That there were rules for engagement and inclusion of other people who want to be a part of that. Like, for example, the classic person is, is Ruth, who was a Moabitess, uh, and Rahab, who was a Canaanite, probably. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's uh, vital to understand that it wasn't a separatist, uh, but they were to be a light to other, other nations. Um, the Old Testament really is key, especially in, when I think about the African-American experience, because uh, the African-American experience often is tied to the exodus um, of uh, Israel being in bondage in Egypt and let my people go and those things. And then we talk about justice and the prophets and how uh, much attention African-Americans particularly pay um, attention to the prophets with Amos and um Isaiah and the justice. When we think about prophetic, um, prophetic preaching in the Old Testament and what it means to be prophetic, when you look at the Black church tradition, there's kind of different streams of thought. There's prophetic when it comes to justice. Then if you look at the Black Pentecostal experience, prophetic means kind of a future, uh, being able to tell the and, and forecast the future endeavors. Uh, biblically, when you look at the Old Testament prophets, what, how would they define what it means to be prophetic? It's an excellent, excellent question. And it, oh, it usually comes up uh, in the context of many of my Old Testament classes. The function and definition of a prophet simply is that the person, uh, man or woman speaks for God. And usually when a prophet is raised up in the Old Testament, the idea is that God has placed his spirit in them, on them, and has given them a message. And then the message is not their own. The message might be uh, a part of their life in terms of their family and children, Isaiah, uh, Hosea, and Gomer, but it's a message that God then gives to them. And so whether it's a, it's a personal application, whether it's a social application, whether it's economic justice, um, first and foremost, there are those kind of you will prophetic preaching. Because first of all, it's, 
it's uttered and given by God, the sacred and and the secular. They don't have no, they they have no consequence of God, and that we didn't we don't do the separation between church and state. Uh, it's thus saith the Lord, and the message comes forward. Okay, you kind of went out a little bit as you were articulating that last point, but I think what uh, what you're saying is that they are prophets are those who speak for God, and uh, there's in the in in the Old Testament, there's no, for them, they're in a theocracy. So there's no distinction between the church and state um, for their, um, from their vantage point. Is that, is that what you're articulating? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Um, and so uh, as we think about that uh, and we think about what prophets were speaking to, um, one of the things I think is interesting is how we split the two. So looking in Isaiah and him talking about justice and honing in on the social justice part, um, some people do. And then some people hone in on the personal piety part portion. Um, are you following where I'm going? And he's speaking to, to both in the same passage, um, but some kind of way we make that separation. Um, in our um, in our uh, exegesis, or it may be eisegesis to to <laughs> to whoever you're speaking to. Um, how were the prophets thinking? Were they thinking just about the social implications, or were they thinking about personal piety? I, I remember reading like in um, Malachi, and Malachi is talking to the priests about the way they treat their wives and committing adultery but then he's also talking about justice and so he's he's put he's both of them is showing that both are important to god and sometimes whether you're on a conservative uh, evangelical spectrum outside of this present administration uh personal piety <laughs> used to be the the leaning thing of the day um, but something has happened, interestingly enough, where it's been dismissed in order to uh, uh, continue to cling to uh, this current administration uh, that is indeed pathetic. Um, but if, but then on the other side, then there's a clinging to justice-oriented things and a dismissal of of piety and from my reading of the old testament especially the prophets it seemed like they were um both were important not just either or is that is am i correct in that observation i think you're absolutely right on target with that that it can't be it's not either or but it's both and and that a holy people who are set aside for god's use um, then can go out and be the kind of witnesses and um, spokespersons and societal changers that the Lord would have them be. Uh, you can't have somebody who's just concerned about social justice and there aren't any ethical concerns. And what's interesting, if you look at, you know, 8th century book of, of Amos, uh, you see that where 
Amos is concerned about personal, social ethics, but also the societal society abuses. And for him, the two are interconnected in that when you're when you're cut off from God in a in a piety in, in the sense of piety and practice, then that has ramifications for the larger society as whole. So that in the black community get the societal wrongs and say, if this is wrong, something has to be wrong with your the way you understand the Lord and piety, which was a lot of what Martin Luther King did in the 60s with challenging his white brethren to say that, you know, if you believe this on a personal level, then you should be concerned about this on a societal level. And the, and the two are symbiotic. You can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is sy- systemically, um, for me, as I'm thinking through Old Testament and trying to think through it critically, I'm thinking about how can we evoke systemic change without challenging personal piety? Because those who you want to make the systemic changes have to have personal piety first for them to then lead to systemic change. Um, And then on the other hand, if you really have personal piety, why do you construct systems that uh, oppress other people groups? So it's like one can challenge um, the, 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 those who claim personal piety, that it might be a fraudulent thing if your personal piety allows you to construct those those systems. And oh, absolutely. absolutely, absolutely. I think in communities of color, we see the connection between the individual and the systemic and collective. And I would argue in the Old Testament, that kind of idea of the individual being a part of and connected with the larger community is actually built right into the language so that uh and the worldview whereas because of the western church influence and the greek influence we're very individualistic whereas the old testament and the new testament for that matter is is very group oriented that I individually worship the Lord, but I worship the Lord as a part of a larger collective uh, collective people. And, and transformation on the individual life and practice has larger implications for how I act in groups and how groups uh, act in a larger part of society. And so, it, for, again, there's a between both the individual piety and I would suggest uh, collective social justice and change. Yeah. And I like how you point it to the communal aspect, because I think about like Ezra and as he's praying, he's constantly talking about us and his prayer is not individualistic. And then you look to Jesus and the model prayer, our father, there's the continual pointing to the community that what I do just doesn't affect me, but it affects us. And then when I look at like Ezekiel and the things that God is taking Ezekiel through the crazy things to sit on your side, losing his wife, things of that nature, our experiences. So he will be so he will know how the larger community feels and be able to minister to them in an effective way on behalf of God. And so 
it seems like our American Western view is has isolated itself in such a way that it's not able to connect with the communal texts um, that we're interacting with today. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But you know, it's interesting the rise of the religious right. They see themselves now trying to bring, you know, their individual, I think, narrow perspective to the larger political scene. Um, which, and they see there's a connection between the personal and what you're going in society. I think though, and, and that I agree with, I disagree with how narrow their perspective is. And it's a lot of times anti-women, uh, it's anti-people of color. And it's, you know, we have to raise our voices to say, look, if you're gonna look at scripture this way and hold these pietistic practices valid, then you ought to say something about housing deficits. You ought to say something about Black Lives Matter. You ought, you ought to say something about the way women are, are treated and abused and not their voice is not heard. And so those kinds of social justice issues, again, for me, flow out of my commitment to Jesus Christ and that all are made in the image of God, men and, and women, and that they're, they're, they're co-equal um, and, and the loving the, the, the for me as an exegete in Old Testament exegete. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to me uh, looking at the political landscape and how we've shifted um, as it relates to how we look at Bible. So the right when uh, President Obama was in office uh, had took issue with his um, stances on certain social issues. Um, and they would say, well, he is um, he doesn't need to, uh, as, as a, the, they were holding him to a biblical standard in a sense, they were saying, this is what the Bible says. He's creating laws that conflict that, and that's problematic for them. This is what the political right. But then when the new president, president Trump was elected, then it was, well, his personal behavior doesn't matter because he's the president. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> But then that that was interesting because then the, I saw some black preachers when uh, President Obama was in office, they would say, well, he's not the president. Uh, he's not our pastor. He's the president. And then fast forward. Uh, why is he acting like this? He's the president, not he's the president and he's acting so immoral. So it's amazing the ways in which uh, it flips. Uh, in 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 certain aspects on how people see it, and that those who were um, advocates the political right of absolute truth are now vacillating. They become relativists in a sense Absolutely. of what they view as truth, and those who are advocating for relative truth uh, in in one administration are now advocating for absolute truth. So it seems as if there's a pendulum swing and the inconsistencies on both sides are causing people uh, to lose their moral high ground and credibility. Mm -hmm. Am I making sense with what I'm, well, what I'm saying? Well, absolutely. And I think what we see now in the climate that the issue really is about political power. It's not about, for them, it's not about, is one right or one wrong? It's about 
political power and a, a political agenda where they'll push on trying to push a, a Supreme Court uh, candidate through uh, who has serious shortcomings, both I think in temperament and both present and past history. And it's it's not about his the quality and body of his, his legal work. It's about that he has a certain political vantage point and standards of morality. They seem like they've just chucked them to the side. And I think one of the, the things they also blatantly disregard is the fact in the Old Testament, there isn't a bifurcation of one's personal life and one's uh, public practice. David and Samuel, first and second Samuel, uh, the mistakes he made on a private had larger political implications for the for his family and for the nation as well. And so we might try to make a nice distinction between, oh, this happens in his private life. He has over 10 women who have made accusations about immoral behavior in his private life. But we're not interested about that. We're interested in his public life. No. Public failings are usually connected to private failings. And so there is no nice demarcation that one can say, okay, I did this on my private life and it has no implication publicly. I think the Bible would shoot that principle, that erroneous principle down. Yeah. And I think that's important that we know because as we're living in this era, even on and speaking to if speaking to both sides, that that problem weighs heavy on the political right, but then it, it weighs heavy sometimes in some pol political progressive spaces in the church. And that's, I know I've known several womanists to take issue with this. And I think they're right on this point. If you're going to advocate for morality systemically, you, you have to have that personal piety that goes along with it. So if you're a womanizer in private, but and, and you're a preacher, but you're advocating for systemic, uh, systemic, uh, if you're advocating for systemic injustices, uh, I mean, you, you're wanting justice um, systemically and you're talking against the culture, you lose your political high ground with people when you just do anything privately. You're just reckless, um, especially younger people. There's the inconsistency. So if you're going to call out Trump for being who he is, a playboy, uh, because it's political, it, it, it's right and proper to call it out. Don't be a womanizer in private, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, because then, then there's not a congruency there. And so I think, you know, if you're going to call out the the systemic injustices in in the culture, we have to be consistent morally. And like like we've been articulating through this conversation, they go together. It's not one and the one and the other. There's the both and. Would you like to add anything to that? I'm a additionally in addition to being a professor, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for the year now at a, a church here in the, in the Bronx, uh, Soundview Presbyterian Church, and you have to you have to 
try to live right because <laughs> if you're not if you're not um your members will call you out on it and if you try to preach and teach they'll say reverend reverend you are you are hanging out with me as well and your your message is discounted and your message is discounted by your personal practice not to say that all of us have fallen short but sometimes we use that as a scapegoat not to attempt to live uh, the life that God, God has called us to live. So you're right. We, you know, we can't we can't talk social justice and have lives that are. And with the womanists and feminists, I I totally concur on that. And I think uh, they're right to raise that issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's vitally important. We're going to shift gears, um, and I just want to note we're not arguing for perfection, but there should be some progression and there should be there should be power to the gospel you can proclaim if you are proclaiming that the gospel sets us free from sin then let your life be the evidence of it because people are going to see proclamation without demonstration and it's going to lead lead them hopeless if there's no if they can't see evidence of it um so I want to talk to you why why have you about the old testament and something that Hebrew Israelites point to, um, Deuteronomy 28, 68. So um, I, uh, this is a verse that Hebrew Israelites cling to. Um, this is their verse that it to them is the verse that among other verses, but this is one of the key verses in the Old Testament um, because there's the ship correlation and Egypt becomes metaphorical in America. Um, Egypt becomes America in their mind. Um, and so they um, they are going, they say that this validates that African-Americans are the true tribe of Israel. Um, and they have a chart for other member groups, um, other marginalized groups um, that also they feel like are um, a part of the 12 tribes. So. Uh, I gave that verse to you. And so can you speak a little bit to that, to that, what that verse is really articulating Deuteronomy 28, 68, and why it's problematic to see it the way they're trying to articulate it as an affirmation that African-Americans are the true tribe of, of Israel. The tribe of Judah, I'm sorry. This, I would say, one of the dangers of doing biblical exposition is that in its larger context, um, you can take a text out of its context and you can almost make a text say mean anything. And when you look at chapters 27 and 28 in the book of Deuteronomy, it is a list of curses and blessings uttered by Moses as he's preparing uh, the people of God for his final his final departure from them. And if you look at that verse, verse 68 in chapter 28, it has nothing to do with, with, with uh, black Israelites. It has to do again with the people of God and the consequences that will occur upon them. And in this context, it's, it's uh, 12 tribes of Jacob, that again, God will inflict upon them 
punishments. And there's always in the Old Testament, and I would suggest in the New, an Egypt motif, in that the patriarchs were going back and forward to Egypt because of the Nile River flowing through X number of, of countries and it having water there. So when there was drought in Jerusalem, they would go down to Egypt. You see the same motif there in the life of, uh, of Jesus. Out of Israel, I called my son that Matthew uses there in Matthew chapter two. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a reuse of, of that text in the life of Jesus. But again, back to the how people misconstrue uh, chapter 28. If you don't see that in, the, in its original context of Moses speaking to the children of God uh, as he prepares to leave, I think you, you misconstrue what that text is talking about. It's not talking about uh, people of color uh, as the true Israelites. It, it, it just, that's just not what the text means. And for mm -hmm. somebody to say that, you could not find that interpretation in any reputable commentary in Deuteronomy by any reputable scholar. You just, you just wouldn't. <laughs> in progressive or or conservative, you're not going to find it. Conservative, <laughs> liberal, conservative, high view of scripture, no view of scripture, you would not find that. <laughs> there, it's not there. Uh, and it's interesting about that passage that it says we go back to Egypt. And so Egypt in the second going back to becomes America um, in, in their minds. And also at the end, because KJV is one of the only um, texts they, they deem as sacred, uh, that um, it says no one will buy, buy, want to buy you. And so it is a really distinction of the, like you said, it's the curses and how you know, that God's judgment will be so heavy upon you that you'll be rejected by God and man. Um, and so it's just, it's interesting. And it, what what is also fascinating to me about the passage that I don't understand um, is their hatred for for white men. If, if, if the curses are in fact their own, because of Africans' own disobedience, the anger to me should then be upon God and not the white man. Um, but it's just because he's the cause of the curse in the first place. So it's, it's very, those are just some questions that I always think about um, as to referencing why people go there. Um, but I think what, what we we're talking about before is, is important because one of the main reasons when I engage with Hebrew Israelites about why they're going in this direction or how they're easily swayed. A lot of it has to do with them not knowing how to interpret the Old Testament in light of the new, how it fits together. So in problematic portions, they'll disregard. So some will jettison the Pauline letters and, you know, they have issues with Jesus' atoning, what Jesus' atoning work did. And so, um, yeah. As we close, for those who are just really struggling and need some simple basic steps on how to systematize engaging the Old Testament in light of the new, what would just be some guiding principles that they could use? Some, if you have four, two or three, four steps that you would tell them. 
I would I would challenge people not to neglect uh, the Old Testament and, and uh, get a good study Bible uh, that would reference, say, how this passage is is referenced in the New. Um, and first of all, I would I would challenge people to read the Old Testament because a lot of times uh, they'll they'll cherry pick a verse or look at how a verse is quoted in the new from the old without knowing the larger context. And so my challenge would be, you know, get a readable translation of uh, the Old Testament and read it. Get an, an, a new international version, along with your, your King James Bible. Many of us grew up on King James. I still love the poetry of the King James. but the challenge is with many of us that sometimes we don't know what the King James is actually saying because in 1611 when it was translated, that's how people spoke. We don't we don't do the vows and these and their whiffs and therefores. Uh, we we speak in a more modern way. So get Good News Bible, um, uh, ESV Bible, NIV, uh, TNIV, a modern translation that you could actually read along with uh, a King James Bible and examine it. Also, a guiding principle is that a, a passage has a meaning in its context and always uh, be mindful of the larger context in which a passage is, is presented. And that if you're looking at, say, the book of Exodus, uh, um, are the larger themes in the book. And so usually there are major events that happen in a book that a writer is dealing with and they'll permeate the whole book. That's why it's it's dangerous, say, just to read maybe chapter 20 of Exodus and then jump to a New Testament book or another part of the Old Testament. You want to see what's going on in that in that that book as a toll as a as a whole, so that um, you won't readily just kind of cherry pick and, and pull text out of context. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. What resources would you recommend? Um, when thinking through the Old Testament? One of the, if, if somebody uh, wants a nice, I would, I would challenge them. One of the books I use for my Old Testament class, A Survey of the Old Testament by Hill and Walton, a very readable um, book on just the Old Testament. Um, there's a nice book by, by I think, C.H. Wright on Christ in the Old Testament. If somebody's trying to figure out, okay, how does Christ relate to the Old Testament? Uh, that's a, another topical study. But I first start with a, a, a nice readable Bible. And then to give a, uh, the Hill and Walton book, it's, it's a thick book, but it's a book that you could, uh, chapters are pretty short, 10 or 15 pages that if you're looking at the book of Exodus, you could read this along with your uh, your Bible to see actually what's actually going on in the biblical text itself. Yes, and that's so important because um, when you're engaging cults, uh, cults are, are going to use scripture, but in the definition of cults, it's just the deviation um, from some orthodox or traditional beliefs about the religion. So they're going to use some truth, 
they're going to mix a little of their perversion of it in it. But if you don't know the truth, then you'll be easily deceived. So the goal is to get so familiar with the truth that you'll be able to spot a lie immediately. How, you know, the counterfeit money uh, illustration of how they do money um, fits there really, really well. But you want to you don't want to necessarily go and find out everything this particular group believes when you don't know really what you believe or the Bible says about faith in general, because it's easier when you just know the truth that you believe mm -hmm. and you'll be able to say, OK, when they throw out Deuteronomy uh, 28, 68, you'll say, well, that's not what the context is saying. So when they tell you they take you on this rabbit trail of different verses, you could go to the larger context of what the book is saying. And I think that's so vital um, in, in, in equipping our people on how to engage these new groups that are popping up because there are so many deviations in their different group beliefs. Um, there are different camps or like denominations that you'll spend days upon days trying to chase that and not know the larger context of what you believe. So you need to know what you believe first so you'll be able to engage and know the context. So that's why I believe what you're sharing is so vital because people have to know what they believe and why they can engage people who believe something differently. Um, how can people get in touch with you on social media? Okay, let me let me let me uh, I'll do that. Let me let me recommend one other book too. Uh, the book by okay. uh, P. N. Stewart, How to Read and Study the Bible for All It's Worth. And what they do is they go through different types of scripture in the Old and New Testament, and give you book methods and principles for interpretation. Very readable book. You can actually even find it as a PDF online, and you can find it. Uh, how do people get in contact with me? I'm on I'm on Facebook with with the family, uh, as well. Uh, I I have a, a account that I use sporadically, and I tweet sporadically. So if you just uh, look up Cleotha Robertson, uh, you'll find me. Um, I'm there, and I have a picture there with the family. So I'm I'm pretty easy. I'm pretty easy to find. Well, thank you, Dr. Robertson. This has been a rich time, and I'm sure. Um, many have been helped by this. Uh, maybe we'll go dig a little bit deeper. Uh, I want to do um, some uh, difficult passages in the Old Testament, uh, a oh, series on that coming up, uh, problematic passages excellent. in the Old Testament. Uh, so I definitely will be reaching out to you uh, for that. So thank you so much again. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. And I really appreciate that the work that you're doing with you three. God, God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged 
in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.